Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. It's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Thanks for listening today. I'm Cindy House. Patty Larkin. Yes, Patty Larkin is who we're talking to today. She is a absolute monster on the guitar, although uh, starting on the piano when she was younger. But after her uncle gave her a guitar, it was all over for young Patty. The main appeal of the instrument was the privacy in which one could play. So she holed up for hours playing in her room. In high school, she further experimented with different ways to play while working on her singing and writing, and she moved to Boston in the 70s to study jazz guitar. She played in several rock bands on electric, but she switched her focus to acoustic in the 80s, which like broadened her range, and she rediscovered jazz styles and studied the work of Richard Thompson, you know, among others. Around that time, she became an integral part of the New England folk circuit with people like Bill Morrissey, Jonathan Brooke, and Martin Sexton. For decades, Patty Larkin has been a household name within the folk world as she continues to wow us with her intricate style and sophisticated work that has this like particular high-level humor within her writing. Writing and delivery. Patty's latest is a record that sets poetry to her original music. Work by Billy Collins, Natalie Diaz, Nick Flynn, and Marie Howe all make their way into Bird in a Cage. In our conversation, she discusses why she was intrigued to combine music and poetry. She would work the practice of reading poetry out loud into her mornings in order to inspire herself into the day. This left her amazed enough to dedicate an entire record to the process. The project also happened to be the last collaboration Patty completed with the much-revered and loved producer Mike Deneen, who sadly died in 2018. She and Mike co-produced Bird in a Cage, and she speaks of their connection and how they would work together. Also, she has the most epic lightning round answer to where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited, so I hope you listen all the way to the end of this fantastic conversation with Patty Larkin. First, I want to play you a song uh, from her latest album, Bird in a Cage. This is the track Magdalene on Romance, which was inspired by a Marie Howe poem. So we'll check out the track and then we'll get to our conversation with the great Patty Larkin on Basic Folk. Wanna hear stop drinking? Wanna hear to make the bed? Want him to pay attention and wear shoes instead sneakers. I'd explain him to himself so well. He would come to love someone comes to a good idea. 
or a slammer and a screamer, professor and explainer, a dog instructing dogs. Cool. I'm so excited to talk to you. Same Thank here. you so much for, for talking to me, Patty. Um, so you grew up among music and art. Your mother was a painter, grandmother's taught piano, sisters are both musicians. How do you think being exposed to that amount of creativity and art at a young age affected your outlook on the world? Well, I think there was, it was given a lot of importance, you know, it was given a lot of weight in our family. And um, uh, my parents, they didn't play music. My mom played piano quite well. Both grandmothers were church organists and one taught piano as well. And the other one played in the, for silent movies in Chicago. And, um, but every, so both families, every time we got together with the grandmothers, they would just start playing piano and we would all stand around and sing. And so we were really inspired by that, I think. And just had a lot of fun doing it. Everybody, they were probably drinking beer, but they were having a really good time. (laughs) You know, there was kind of a party atmosphere about it. And, um, uh, so when we were little, we couldn't wait to take piano lessons. And so we studied classical piano and then a folk guitar got into the house and that was it for me pretty much. You started on the piano, but after you, you know, you said the guitar got in the house and it sounds like you loved it immediately, like, especially because you could take it into your room and like play it alone by yourself. So I'm interested in hearing more about like why you think playing by yourself at that age was so important to you? Well, I think, you know, we were studying classical piano. My sisters became very great. They were excellent pianists. One went more into jazz. The other one was a great classical pianist, and now she's getting back to it. But for me, the um, I just really loved the personal aspect of the guitar, how you hold it, that it's a quiet instrument. I like the visual aspect of it too, you know, just being able to make up chords or move a chord up and down the neck. And so I probably was playing for um, a few months or maybe a year and just started writing songs at like 11 or 12. And from then on, that was kind of what I did with my time after school and on weekends and whenever I could. (laughs) I just, I shared a room, but I would just go in there and close the door. And um, it spoke to me. It was also very a very popular instrument as opposed to playing, you know, Brahms or something. And so there was this exchange going on with kids at camp or kids at school. I remember learning the D chord, you know. I just, it was this discovery. And it was also, um, you know, intimate. And it also really served a purpose for me as as an outlet. As a creative mm. outlet. Are you the black sheep of your family? I, you know, probably. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, everybody was really supportive. And, and my parents, you know, at, at a certain point by high school, they were like, well, maybe we should send some of these songs to someone, you know. And so I did some recordings. And, and so they were very proud of it. But there was never this expectation that oh, this is something I would do. But yeah, I think I was always a little bit working outside the box in mm. a way. Yeah, you were talking about your um, deep curiosity and um, experimentation with the guitar in like unique ways. And I read that you consider yourself a musical adventurer. Where do you think that curiosity and desire to like push yourself with the guitar and music came from? And how do you see that in yourself now? Yeah, you know, I, I don't really know. I 
I was thinking about that just the other day because a friend of mine that I played in a band with, she's a, she's a professor of jazz at a play saxophone, Cersei Miller. And I remember her saying, you know, my mom asked me about you, Patty, you know, how, how do you keep coming up with these songs? And that was 30 years ago. And I, I think it's just kind of like making a quilt. You know, it's, it's, it's something that I, I get inspired by it. I get inspired by the sound in the air. And then that sound, because I'm coming off the guitar, uh, makes me want to sing something above it. And sometimes it's just to remember when I'm playing. So I'll put even the instrumental part down. But the best time for me is when it goes almost immediately into words. And then if I can keep writing and keep in that train of thought, and it makes some kind of musical sense and, and obviously language sense, um, I get inspired to keep going. But in terms of experimenting, I think that I, I just love all kinds of music. And so it's it, it comes from that. I, 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 um, I'm going back now to more, you know, like listening to folk songs more closely, just the way you grow as a listener and, and listening to acoustic guitar and vocals. And, um, and then I'll hear something on the radio or hear something my, my daughter's playing and uh, it just, it's really inspiring to me. And so I want to go back to the acoustic guitar and try to emulate that, you know, that loop or that sound of, of pop music or whatever mm. it is or world music. Gosh, you've got such a great brain. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were first playing guitar in the 60s, how did you feel as a young woman who was playing guitar and all in this kind of like unique experimental way um, when it come to like when it ca- came to uh, representation of other women and the guitar? Um, you know, I, I, I was, in, somebody said, who, who was the most inspiring, you know, female artist for you? Any, any woman who played a guitar was inspiring to me. I mean, Richie Havens is inspiring to me. I met him pretty early on and obviously Bonnie Raitt or, or Joni Mitchell, the way she played. Um, but the person that blew me away, probably because I saw her live, but also I'm still a big fan of hers is Ellen McElwain. She's a Canadian songwriter. And I, I was actually going to ask you about Ellen McElwain. Really? Yeah. She, she's on La Guitar, this guitar CD we did, but um, she was at Passim. I had just moved to Boston and I was working in this toy factory, which is another story. And that was a very small museum toys is what we were making. So it was a very, very small factory. But one of the guys, Elliot Ridner, was a uh, Celtic flute player, wooden flute player. And he said, if you like guitar, you have to go see this woman tonight. And I remember it was $3 to get in. And Bob Donald, it was packed. And... It, it was winter. It was it had been freezing cold, so now it was nice and cozy. I got some coffee or something, and and she came out and she just did two or three songs straight away, so loudly, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just was like this wall of acoustic guitar sound. You know, she was definitely plugged in. She had some, maybe she was even going through an amp. I I couldn't. I was in the back, but um, that blew my mind. You know, to see just unabashedly powerful force of nature, you know, 30 feet away. Um, wow. You know, that was like, you know, probably seeing the Janis Joplin of guitar for me at that time. Wow. You were singing and writing as a young person in high school and through college. 
when you were developing all of those skills, like what order of importance did you place your musicality when it came to voice, guitar, and writing? Oh, that's interesting. That's a good one. I, probably the writing, you know, was my first priority. But, um, you know, it's kind of like just praying for that inspiration, you know. And um, I'm now I'm... I'm much more inclined to, you know, record snippets on my phone or, or just go in there and, and write something. That's, that's my process now, <laughs> you know, because it just has to suck for a long time. And then, then you kind of get back to it. You know, you get on a, you can get on a roll. And when that happens, when you're, um, it, it, when it's coming easy, more easily, it's like, this is so simple. I could do this every day, all day, you know, but, um, I think that's that is what some writers do, and I think it, it probably works to your advantage that way. I can't remember really what your question was, other than well, which was my priority? I think I I kind of toggle between each aspect of it. So I know that at some point, learning learning how to read for the guitar was really important to me. It was like this discovery that I just I was teaching high school English as a I was you know, getting my teaching certificate in college and went into the, I went into the, the faculty um, library to see what else I was going to teach, you know. Um, I drifted right away to the music section and there was uh, Bill Levitt's book on, um, you know, Guitar One from Berkeley College of Music and I just started reading it and it was like, I didn't really get that you could read the notes for the guitar, you know, I uh, I knew you could do it for the piano, but I mean, that's how naive I was really. And it was so intriguing to me. And I just wanted to learn as much as I could at that point. And um, it's still pretty much that way. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> doesn't really, that part doesn't stop. But then at another point, I did study voice. And then I just go into really wanted to write, you know, and, and just every aspect kind of circles back around. Because of COVID, I've been, uh, if I have a, a live streaming or, 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 or gig, a live stream, I, I practice the songs that I've played for years. And um, the last time I did that, I wore headphones and I sang into a mic and went through a little mixer. And I had so much fun singing the songs in a different way. So I just feel like it just, the listening gets deeper and the playing gets deeper. What has your outlook been like over the years on acoustic guitar versus electric guitar? And how do each of those relate to your other talents of singing and writing? Um, so how, what's the difference between the two instruments for me? Or? For you, yeah. Well, yeah. I, um, I played electric guitar in a air quotes rock band. And, um, and, then I, and I studied jazz guitar as well. But I, then I... I sold it, unfortunately, the the telly, and because um, I was really going to concentrate just on the acoustic guitar. This was like the, in the '90s, and so then I worked with John Leventhal, who plays both instruments quite well, and I just loved what he did with the whammy with Sean Colvin's albums and just the way he played electric. He getting this kind of Celtic, drony sound, and so I wrote something on the electric, I think it was Hotel Monte Vista or something like that. So I just started using the whammy bar and getting kind of a, an Appalachian drone sound to it. 
So I'm approaching the instrument more like inspired by Richard Thompson or or John Leventhal or um, that English Celtic electric sound. The other thing that happened to me, not to ramble on, but I was listening to an interview that Terry Gross was doing with Lucinda Williams and Gerf Morlix was playing electric guitar with her. But unfortunately, Lucinda's acoustic was down so low in the mix, you couldn't hear it. So all I heard was her beautiful voice singing with this electric guitar with a lot of vibrato on it. I just thought that was a really cool sound. So that inspired me to go out, run out and get a Stratocaster with a whammy bar and, and go back to it. Yeah, it sounds like it's been like a, a complex relationship with the electric guitar. Like it seems like the acoustic like calls you back all the time. It but does. Then you, yeah. The, then you get like reinvigorated with the electric. Yeah, it's really fun in it. And I also have the loop machine set up to uh, the gizmo set up to the electric. So that's when I'm doing any kind of looping live. That's what I'm using. And um, so I'm, my goal is maybe to branch into the acoustic with the looper. But um, it it's a really fun writing tool as well. I used it on. I think two or three different songs on my last album um, where I had just, you know, samples of loops that I just had cataloged on my computer. And um, when I was going through the poetry, a couple of them, I just went through these different loop snippets and I was like, oh, this would be great. And um, use that as the basis of the song. So it's it's fun. It's really fun. Um, so you landed in Boston in the 70s, and then in, like, 81, you started to play acoustic guitar, and it seems like that's, like, around the time where you started playing the folk circuit and becoming part of this, like, amazing community of musicians there, mm-hmm. like Bill Morrissey, Jonathan Brooke, Martin Sexton, Peter Mulvey. Mm-hmm. How do you think you benefited from that community in terms of like validation, collaboration, and general connection from your peers? You know, I think about it now, and it was so inspiring, especially living in Cambridge and Somerville when I when I was first starting out, um, just to have access to all of that music and all of that friendly uh, competition and camaraderie. You know, it was really we were listening to everything the other people were doing and you could hear it on the radio you could go to clubs and hear it it was really accessible um it it was really powerful and it and it really kind of drove the the point home that boston was the singer songwriter place and i think when i was starting out the the i i was really amazed at how supportive the greater boston area and new england continued to be for um people who were songwriting because the folk and acoustic music circuit was was very strong as well, but they were the coffee houses were really supportive of songwriters, and and so that sustained us, and the nonprofit coffee houses as well sustained us. I think we really learned a lot from each other, and in many ways, and uh, then it became it morphed into this even more of a of a business kind of aspect in the '90s. By the time we got to the '90s, you know, people were uh, someone like Tracy Chapman or Suzanne Vega, you know, people that we had known had some commercial success, like Grammys. So that made record companies more interested in, you know, everybody down the food chain. You know, what what else is there? What else, you know, what are, what other kind of artists are around that we would like to support, you know, because maybe we can get a, we can 
do albums and be successful, you know. And so it was, that changed it a little bit, but it was still a lot of fun. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that weird time in the 90s where, like, Sean Colvin was on Top 40 radio next to, like, Prince I know. and Whitney Houston. I yeah. was just talking yesterday, a couple of days ago, about walking into a McDonald's, you know, coming back from a gig in, um, on Long Island, and I, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to get a cup of coffee. I walk in, and one of my songs was on the Muzak, you know, coming through the speakers, and um, I, I went up to the counter and said, hey, that's me. And the guy was like, yeah, right. What do you want? You know? <laughs> and she's definitely nuts. <laughs> That's so wild. I know. All right. I want to talk about how you're funny. <laughs> um, you have a reputation for being very funny with your music, but the way you go about it is, like, really smart. And I kind of want to break it down. I have, like, I tried not to write too many questions about how you're funny, but um, <laughs> how do you view your use of humor and how did you develop its use in your music? Well, I, th- I think at one point in my writing and performing, I I remember talking to a jazz musician friend of mine and, and I said, um, you know, there you are on the stage. Why don't we just use it? How can we, what other things can we do to entertain? Why does it have to be so static? And I think that, that was part of it. I like show tunes. I like, I liked writing skits and things like that as a little kid. And I think I wanted to have some some levity in in the music and in my writing as well. Those kind of songs kind of came pretty quickly to me, or I'd write them in the car, or <laughs> a couple of them anyway. But they, I still get requests for them. I don't necessarily write humorous songs per se. Now I I think I I, I like to think of it as as I just occasionally put a drop a line into the song you know so I'll mm-hmm. do that either with some kind of political opinion or or some kind of humorous observation and I'll just I'll put that in there as a as a little aside I like storytelling and I think that's that's part of of entertaining as well so uh, either I do it with song or um, with my my raps if if you will <laughs> seems like the way that you use humor and music is like subtle in most circumstances like you have songs like the book I'm not reading mm-hmm. and on the new record I don't know if it's 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 kind of like if I listen to a song of yours and I'm like is that supposed to be funny and like like the use of um introduction to poetry yeah like I read about that song and then I listened to it again and was just like laughing through the whole I know uh, the whole song, um, that's uh, the poet Billy Collins. So there's like one use where it's like I'm listening to it and I'm like unsure if it's supposed to be funny, but it is. Like it kind of reminds me of like my dad's sense of humor where I'm like, <laughs> is this supposed to be funny? But then you have um, your song At the Mall, mm-hmm. which is still really smart, but it's uh, but it's like kind of silly. It's like more of overtly using comedy. So like what – is your relationship to like overtly using comedy to like being more uh, subtle with your humor? Um, that's a good question. You know, I th- I think something like the Billy Collins, for instance, when I read his poetry and I'm reading quietly, you know, to myself, he does he cracks me up. He just makes me laugh. So what his observations, his sarcasm, I suppose, uh, and introduction to poetry, you can hear. I I could not get the voice back that I got when I was just goofing around 
taping it to my iPhone. And I, I think of it as a um, definitely, you know, the singer is just so serious that it's ironic. And I, so we ended up using the, the first verse is my iPhone uh, sample. And you can hear me laughing after I do one of the lines uh, in the, on the album. And we just, I we just kind of like worked it so that it worked in timing wise. I don't, I don't know what the my co producer did, but he he helped me. Um, <laughs> and when I perform it, uh, I've only done it a couple times live. One time I did it with sunglasses on, just to kind of like that's like a signal. Okay, well this is supposed to be funny, but I don't know what, how I'm going to perform it other than. I'd love to do it without a guitar so so that I can like do dance moves but um <laughs> <laughs> you know like and then I'd like to have three backup singers but um other than that something like the mall that is that's pretty still pretty out there it's it's it is um you know I think of it as a um like a show tune or or something from a you know, a, an MGM movie or something like that, you know, and then mm. it has the quotes with Marlena and Carmen um, Miranda, you know, obviously that kind of music uh, reference, musical reference, but also then um, it's sort of social commentary just in terms of what you, why go to a mall or what you do at a mall. And I, I wrote that, I think in 1981 or 82, and I remember it, malls were sort of new then, <laughs> believe it or not. I never realized how big they were going to become, that they were going to be the social phenomenon where people go and they go walking in them, you know, for exercise. <laughs> but <Right. you> know, <laughs> The mall walker. Yeah. But um, I, I think what I'm turning over in my mind now is something like this last album, this 10 poems that I set to song. I would like to do that as a, as a whole show and connect those dots, you know, somehow mm. to do them. I, I kind of take the songs and do two or three in a row in my live shows now, uh, the few that I've had since March. But um, I think it would be interesting to to produce these in a different way for, for a live show. I think of them as, as small theater pieces. I don't know if I've answered your question on humor, except that I, I love it. I, you know, somebody like Cheryl Wheeler is like, a good friend, but also she just she cracks me up, you know, every time she she sings and plays. John Gorka, good friends of mine. Christine Lavin, of course, is, is very gifted at writing satirical commentary that's very funny and timely. And Bill Morrissey, his timing was just impeccable. I mean, you mm. could just sit there and you would have to wait for him to finish the line. But it was just, he was just a master at it. A storyteller, but also his timing was excellent. And so it was always fun to work with him. Mm. favorite guitar is still your 1946 Martin D18? I've started, yeah, I I perform with a, a guitar built by Jim James Olson, Jim Olson, which I now have gotten so used to the neck of it that when I, I've been playing the, um, the D18, which is back behind me here, and the neck just feels so huge, and I just have to tell <laughs> myself, you know, it's just so thick 
and I have to tell myself, please, you know, just sit with it. You used to play it all the time, you know, but it is, it is so light and so beautiful that I'm, I've gotten back to it. I have to get the action down a little bit on it. I have to have it worked on a little. And the action, just for people who oh, don't know, sorry. is like how far the strings are. Yeah, I had it. I had a bridge. new pickup put in it, and he, uh, my luthier thought it was this is where I would like it, and I just have to bring it back and say no. I need it lower now. <laughs> yeah, save your fingers, exactly. please. <laughs> Muscle workout. So, can you um, tell the story of where you got that, Martin? Oh God, I was um, I was living in Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, going to school you know, being an English major, but also playing a lot of music. And I really wanted to get a Martin, an old Martin guitar. So this was in the 70s. It wasn't as hard as it is today. I was going to Portland. I was looking, I was looking in the paper. And I one Sunday, I saw this ad for a 1946 Martin D18. I was like, it's probably $300. I thought it's probably already gone. And the guy was like, no, I have it right here. Come on over and look at it. So somebody's playing it right now. And I knew the guy was playing it. I'm like, I better get over there. <laughs> and I don't know how I got there because I only had a bicycle at that point, but I probably rode my bike and um, played the guitar. I was like, oh, this is really great. I love this guitar. Will you take 250 for it? And he goes, okay, yeah, but you can, you can clean my trailer for the last $50. So I did that, and the guy lived in a junkyard in a trailer. I mean, it was a nice trailer, but there, it was actually, what he did was sell auto parts, and he also collected all these instruments. He had a, like a 1950s lap steel that was like, oh, with the amp, should have gotten that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I, two or three times I cleaned his trailer. I think there might have been an Elvis, a Velvet Elvis with a tear, you know. Then he asked me a, to go out and hear some country music one time, and I was like, I don't, uh, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> and then I, the last time I went to clean the trailer, uh, he wasn't there. And I thought, well, how, how hard can this be? I think I climbed over, I climbed over the fence and into the, into the junkyard. And there was a junkyard dog in there and it chased me back on top of a, of a rusted car. And I jumped back over the, <laughs> to the other side of the fence. And I called the guy, I'll, I'll bring over that $30 I owe you. You know, whatever it was, it was, <laughs> I thought my poor parents, yeah, my parents knew they would have killed me. But um, so I took that guitar everywhere and and played, you know, backup bluegrass with it and played on the street in Cambridge with it. And um, yeah, it's it's probably my oldest friend, instrument wise. Questions about poetry. Your latest record sees you setting poems from 10 notable poets to song, which seems like, did you first try that in 2013 on Still Green? Yeah, with, with the K. Green, Ryan. Green Behind the Ears. Green Behind the Ears. And that was just um, something that, because I would read poetry before I wrote every day, and I was in a hotel room and reading her poems, which I love. And I got to mm. the last one, and I just happened to have the guitar in my lap. You said when... You set Kay's song to, to poetry. It was a revolution for me to follow her words down into melody. And I also read that you did an event backing up Marie Howe in 2014 with like ambient guitar while she read poetry. Mm-hmm. And you said, I was becoming intrigued with the notion of combining music and poetry. So what exactly was in, intriguing to you about that process? Well, it's, it's sort of like a call and response in a way. And 
what I did when I was writing the you know song music to the these poems it had to really kind of capture my imagination or my voice and it was really immediate it just depended what tuning I was in or I'd try a different tuning maybe I'd try a different way and it was just a visceral response to the words and and it was all about finding the the voice of the poem the the character the speaker in order to to sing the song and so it was it was sort of like acting, I suppose, you know, and what I was doing with mm-hmm. Marie was sh- I was just on stage with her as she read uh, her latest book is uh, a series of poetry based on Mary, the Mary Magdalene story. And um, so I did my song Mary Magdalene at one point, but she just kept reading. And so as she would read, some of the poems were new to me, and I just would respond on my electric guitar with the violin bow or kind of like loop improv. Thing. Yeah, yeah, improv. That's and cool. um, she, there are a couple of poets that I met. Well, Nick Flynn is also one that they're very interested in playing with uh, music and having musicians, live musicians. He does something where he does, he'll do a reading where there's. Uh, uh, <laughs> slides <laughs> that's the word so there's there's a visual aspect to it and then also uh the musician is an electronic musician who has all these different you know loops and sounds and he's uh, they have some things that are planned Robert Pinsky does the same thing with the jazz trio that's that works really really well so I was seeing this happening and kind of working on the same idea myself we've done a, a reading where the poets read the poem and then I uh we did it on online but the poem gets read by the poet and then I sing this my version of their poem that was really a lot of fun because we could talk back and forth I see it even as more interactive in the future when we can all be together again or Mm. just so that we can work on something together you know that that um, that makes sense and I know some of these artists are, are into doing that I want to hear more about during this project uh, for the new record, your morning routine. You said you began your writing days by reading my favorite poets just to be amazed and inspired. I look to poetry as I look to nature with awe. So like, I feel like that's like my goal in the morning. Like I want that sense of awe. Um, Mm -hmm. But what did it feel like for you? And can you talk about like giving yourself that, that sense first thing in the morning? Yeah, it's interesting because um, now I'm not doing that as much right now. Maybe that's what's missing in my writing process. Right? It's like there's a there's a thing where you're like something is missing, and it's yeah. that I, I'm awe. journaling. How do you capture it? Yeah, and that it really. I mean, I know that when I when I want to write, I I I pick up books so that and just start reading again because it's it, it's like oh. That see what grog do, you know, like see, that's this can happen. You can take a thought and put it into words, and um, so I find that inspiring. Um, but to do it where you just sit down and read the poem, there's it's even more distilled. It's more concise. The leaps are are right there on the page. You know, the the great leaps of thought and image, the parallels and the it just. Um, because it's so concise, it can wow you immediately. And it doesn't yeah. take that long. <laughs> <laughs> you said, if I could find the voice of the poem, find the character who's speaking the poem, I could sing it. What did that process look like 
And how do you think like digging into these poems so intimately changed your connection and how has it changed your writing? Um, I know that um, for me working on this project, anything I had been writing songs a little bit differently prior to the the project, just trying to get it, the word distilled is something I just used, but I mean, just to try to get it simplified. And by working with these poems, I think the same thing has happened where they, they make these leaps like passing through where Stanley Kunitz says, you know, I'm gradually, I'm changing to a word. And just, it's just kind of a remarkable image that I, that a few songwriters use that kind of language but to be able to read it and then sing it for me it's it's really fresh and it makes me want to get my get my work just a little simpler you know um Hmm. and I'm so I'm editing more (laughs) damn it (laughs) (laughs) and then I also um the other thing that happened I was out at the um songwriting school in Lyons, Colorado, and I was in the tent right next to Mary Gautier, who was teaching a workshop called uh, Write a Singable Chorus. It was really fun to listen to her yell at her class. All the, She just had so many people there, but she was just like, it was like she was a coach, you know, like, come on, mm-hmm. you can do it, you know, right. uh, every morning. And so I keep her in my head now a little bit too you know like let's simplify that chorus or don't change it up too much you know there's a beauty to to being simpler Hmm. it's so interesting that you're bringing up like editing more and also in mentioning um passing through I read that when you uh were working on that song that the lines fell like almost immediately into song and you said my niece describes that time as the creating phase not the thinking stage it's a dream state where one can live in suspended disbelief until the editorial process begins can you describe what that creating phase feels like when you can feel that phase passing and then also like why it does have to end at some (laughs) point and you do have to go into the editorial process yeah I think of the way Bob Dylan writes, which I don't know him, but I mean, just it seems that he just keeps going. <clears throat> so if I have two uh, two verses in a chorus, you know, my inclination is to say, oh, okay, time to get up and make a peanut butter sandwich or time to go do something else now, <laughs> you know. Um, and then I have to say, no, s- stay here, sit here, because that space that you're in, is magical and and just because you don't know where to go next isn't a good enough reason to get up and move around the cabin because um, it's because um, when you come back um, a lot of times you can't get back into that lane and you have to it becomes more belabored and I I think of also of uh, Leonard Cohen saying that it's taken him some songs ten years to write I think Hallelujah was that way for him. And I kind of get that, and I'm uh, because I have a, a few that were like that. But so there's a craft to it that where you go back and you kind of call and and think about does this make sense? Am I using the same tense here all the way through the song, or who's singing? And but there is 
the magic stage, the, the creation stage is, it really is very, very simple. It just seems like it's, it just is naturally coming to you. And um, who was I thinking about? I overheard John Gorka and Cheryl Wheeler on tour last year, and they were talking about that moment, and I was totally eavesdropping. And they were talking about how how wonderful that was, how addictive that feeling is that that you're just in this moment. It, writing this song is all there is in the world. <clears throat> and I'm sure it does activate certain portions of your brain, but it also... Uh, it, it's very uplifting, you know, and, and makes you feel like, oh, this is why I'm here, really, uh, when that mm-hmm. happens. And um, you, that, that's what's addictive about it. <laughs> Does it make you feel vulnerable or even, like, naive if, if um, you are not, like, open to the moment or if maybe if you're around something or someone who's not open to that? Um, it makes you mad. <laughs> you mean if you're, as you're working, if you're not open to the moment? Right. Like I, so as not like as an artist or a writer, like the way that, that I can relate to that is if I come up with this like really brilliant idea and then I text someone, I'm like, how about this idea? And they're like, you're stupid, you know? And yeah, you, know, you have to be, it, it, it feels terrible. You have to be careful who you tell. Yeah, I know, because you could even come back the next day and say, you know, I thought this was so great and I missed it. I th- I think I used to sit down and write what I considered throwaway songs or ideas for a couple of weeks, and now it just seems like it's a couple months. <laughs> you know, for <laughs> whatever, it's taking me a little bit longer. But um, I don't know if that's because I'm choosier or or not getting into that that moment in quite the same way. But there is this door that opens and it can be, you know, an aha moment when you're cooking or or gardening or walking on the beach or, you know, even driving on, on the highway. You know, it's just you make this, these connections that you're thinking, not thinking. You're using the other side of your brain so that you're, for me, I'm responding to the, the sound in the room, the sound of the guitar. And so the words do come off of, uh, the vocalizations that I'm doing, or I have just the one phrase, and the, and the thing is, you're like, well, that makes no sense, you know, like Wolf at the Door. When I was writing, that, I was like, what are you talking about? And I had to like say, don't think about it, just have fun, right. have fun with the words. It's just a wordplay song, and just um, you'll think of something later <laughs> to explain right, right. it. <laughs> Uh, I was wondering if we could talk about Mike Deneen, who co-produced the new record, um, who you call your musical compass. You worked together for 16 years, five albums. Um, he's worked with Amy Mann, Jen Trinan, Letters to Cleo. Uh, he died in July of 2018. Now, I um, spent a little bit of time around Mike because I had a huge crush on one of his engineers. And so uh, <laughs> Mike allowed me to hang out at Q Division quite a bit. Oh, that's cool. So you know him. Yeah. Can you speak to your collaboration together, like the day-to-day working relationship? And what are some of the greatest impressions he left on you as like a musician, as a person? Yeah. Boy, that's deep. Um 
because I was just listening to the album before uh, we talked, we spoke, and I went somewhere the other day, and they 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 said, "Oh, we've put on the Patty Larkin channel." I go, I didn't even know I had a channel, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. But and one of the songs, the first song that Mike mixed for me was this uh, song called "All That Innocence," and it came on compared to some of my other earlier work, and it just was so so great it just popped and it was uh, like the best mix of the whole ch- channel so far you know and so he for me starting out he mixed a couple three albums and he was just a funny talented you know I say funny because he was so such a pleasure to work with and so smart and brilliant it took a long time for me to figure out that he was actually a musician I don't know why that should have surprised me, but and just came at just had an encyclopedic knowledge of pop and folk and and then also this this other sense of silly humor that is great when you're on hour twelve <laughs> of a mix. <laughs> but um, it wasn't that the there was less work involved. It was just a lot more fun to just be around him than I'd had for a long time in the studio. I mean. Other co-producers or mixers, or everybody's got their talents. Mike, for some reason, he and I had an actual, you know, pretty fluid working relationship. You know, if there was something I didn't like or have an idea. And it wasn't, I remember him saying to me, um, it's not going to suck. And that was just so true. It would be more a case of, do, do I want it to sound this way or this way? They're both valid, beautiful mixes, you know. And then the last couple of albums, we worked together much more closely. And I think, again, uh, the way he spoke to musicians in the studio, especially to the drummer, he was had a real total knowledge and grasp of what he wanted to hear and just this long history with working with bands. So it was, we would just sit there and it was almost like, the way I work in my own studio, which is like, well, let's try this. Well, let's try that. Well, let's try this. Well, let's try that. <laughs> and then why don't you try a different guitar? Like, and so you'd run out to his guitar room and, and get get the Rickenbacker and come back in, you know. And I, I remember on this last one, he would, I was playing for Introduction to Poetry. I was playing this 12-string electric. And he said, no, pick it the first string, third, two, five, whatever it was. He knew how to get the bird sound <laughs> of... Mr. Tambourine Man or something, you know, on that Rickenbacker mm. guitar. So he, and he also loved poetry. He has a lovely family, you know, Jen Trinan's just an amazing person and mm. fabulous artist. And so I, I guess I'm waxing a little bit poetic, but when I think about him, it was a huge loss, obviously, to the entire musical community and personally. But I think he gave me this sense of, of joy, that brought that back to my music. And mm. so I think that that's, that's what I'll look for going forward. That's nice. Yeah. You've been a performing musician for over <laughs> four decades? I would say. Let's see. Yeah. I was trying to count them. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Four, four decades sounds good. Yeah. You're a woman, mother, and an out gay person. How have you seen those different identities and the culture's relation to those identities change over the course of your career? Whoa. Well, 
Um, let's go back in time. Um, I think, you know, I think the arc of the woman as songwriter, as singer, songwriter, musician, um, instrumentalist, I think that has really changed a lot. And thank God for the better. I mean, it's, I describe it as there's still, there's still a bit of a glass ceiling, a string ceiling in terms of the people who have the power, it's hard for them to give it up and it's hard for them to not judge. And so if you're going to walk into a jazz club with a guitar on your back, which Mimi Fox tells the story of doing, they got one of the guys said, well, what are you, you going to sing for us, doll? And she goes, oh, no, I'm going to play the guitar. And, you know, it just blew them all away. I mean, yeah, she's an amazing guitarist. But I think that is becoming more a norm and people are wrapping their heads around the fact that women can be powerful and can direct their careers and sing and write and play and, um, you know, be viable artists other than just, you know, being some something pretty to put in front of a band, you know, and that they're really, the, all the meat and potatoes is happening behind that person, you know. So I think that is really positive. I think the amount of young women and girls who are going into music for the right reasons has, has, is really great. That has, yeah. that has changed. It's a good thing. I think we're on a, on a good <laughs> train to change. I realized being um, a mom, which we have two adopted daughters who are now teenagers, thank you. But, you know, if, I am, if I'm with them, uh, with my partner, or I'm just with them, they have two moms, and that's their life. And so that, to me, was instructive in terms of when I go to my shows, I drop that in, you know, one way or another. And I just tell a small story about, you know, big things we're talking about, like why is there war? Or, you know, these conversations I would have when they were six and seven years old. I just drop in that, yes, I'm queer, and I have two daughters who we've adopted. And... That's not, there's places where that's easy to do, and there's places where I I feel like, I, I don't feel unsafe, but I, I feel like I am, I've got two heads, mm. and I'm st- <laughs> I just took off my other helmet, you know? <laughs> and it's, it's a bit of a stretch, you know? Let's not assume anything about anyone, you know? Having kids, there's just no getting around the fact. You know, if I want them to be proud of us, I have to be proud of us, and I have to... Um, part of my job is to come out about mm. that, and it's um, and it's okay, you know. It's, if it's not okay, I, nobody's talking to me about it. <laughs> so that's so far. That's it seems okay. <laughs> yes, so far it seems okay. The political thing. Once in a while, I did have people walk out, and I was playing Scott's Daily Arizona, and I did say something to make my two uncle priests laugh. Um, who they're they were staunch Democrats and um and I did have people walk out of the and good you know. bye get out yeah goodbye <laughs> yeah but um yeah I think we're all all big enough you know human beings to know that that it takes it takes a village and it's and we're all in this together you know and so this is this is who I am mm. great <laughs> will you do uh, one more thing before you go sure. All right, this is called the lightning round. Oh, dear Lord. 
These are all questions about you, but like, less serious. This is like the college bowl. Okay. Yes, here we go. <clears throat> yeah. First song you learned on the guitar. Oh, God. Uh, this is not lightning, is it? Um... <laughs> it never is. <laughs> no. Um, oh, God. Now, it was a, probably a folk song, you know. Um, probably... Um, Today, while the blossoms still cling to the vine, I don't. That was one of the first ones, and then <laughs> I hear some barking in the background, so yeah. we might know the answer to this question: dogs or cats? Dogs. <laughs> what? Who is barking in the background? That's our dog Zinger. His full name's Red Zinger, <laughs> and he's a, he's a golden. And the previous golden was Red, so Red Starbuck, and so Red Zinger became the. The next one, and then we had another. We're kind of like um, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas because we get the same kind of dog, and they use had the same dog breed and the same name for every dog that they got. So we're, we're kind of like that, but not quite. That's funny. <laughs> what is your coffee order? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I I am if it's you know a fancy place, I like a latte, full full boat, two mm, percent milk. <laughs> First celebrity crush. Whoa. Um, probably Dionne Warwick. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Bonnie or Joni, probably Joni Mitchell. I had to stop listening to her because I, I liked her. I would just like try to sound like her too much. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Wow, probably, I think all of a sudden Doc Watson just popped right into my head. I was sitting next to him. It was a Harry Lipson concert in the early 80s. I know Sean was there. And it was a multiple artist bill. And I was playing my D18 sitting next to him. And he's, I mean, can you imagine? What was I doing? Why didn't I take the D18 and hand it to him and go, hi, do you want to play this? But um, he said, uh, "What? hey, what year is that, that D18? Like he... He just, he knew it was a D18. He knew, you know, it was old. He could just hear it, you know, obviously. Right, because Doc Watson, he was, he, he, he was, was blind. blind. Yeah. Right, so he just could just tell by the, the way it sounded. Yeah, he just knew it, cool. was a, it was, you know, mahogany, you know, D18. That's amazing. First album you bought with your own money. Wow. I, 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 I got, um, I know I got... Eleanor Rigby as a single and it had and we played Yellow Submarine more than Eleanor Rigby um <laughs> I think I think I got a Led Zeppelin album for some reason and, and then I just was like oh my god this is terrible I think I would like it a lot better now <laughs> probably <laughs> yeah okay this is the last question where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited wow I think the first thing that comes to mind is Point Reyes. It's a national park, national seashore north of San Francisco. And there's just something about it that's that's magical to me, just being able to walk above the sea on, you know, the cliffs that overhang the, the ocean out there. And, and mm. um, you can see whales from, from the edge of that cliff. This is in California? It's in California, yeah, yeah north of San Francisco. It's just got a great mix of outdoors and sort of left of center politics that I enjoy. Mm. Yeah. Um, then there were a couple more actually that came to mind. I've been 
travel lucky enough to travel to Moab for the Moab Folk Festival. But even before that, I was playing out there. There was a guy producing shows who was also also worked at the Arches National Park. And I did my first show there. I was like swinging through as a folk singer and, um, you know, got to go. I don't know where I had to go next, but I had to get in my car. And he said, well, what time do you have to leave? And I said, well, I should probably be on the road at, at nine at the latest. And he said, well, if you have an hour, um, let me take you into Arches tomorrow morning and we'll mm. drive a little bit and I'll show you some stuff. And it was, it was just breathtaking. I was like, are you <laughs> you know, like I passed the sign on the way into town, and I thought even the drive into town was awesome. I wrote a song called Traveling Alone about that first drive down there. and um, But then you get into the park, and it is, it's ancient, and it's, it's stunning. The color is stunning, and just the landscape is uh, jaw-dropping. I'd rank that right up with um, Alaska, going into Alaska, and... Um, I think I toured there the first time with the Bitchin' Babes. We went to the Southeastern Alaska State Fair. And I didn't really know what to expect, except that I was really super excited. And we landed in Juneau to take the um, ferry up to Haines, where the State Fair is. The woman who picked us up at the main airport and was bringing us to the bush plane, she said, well, we've got three hours or four hours. You guys want to go see a glacier? And we're like, okay, <laughs> why not? Right. It's better than Chuck E. Cheese, you know? Yeah. Uh, okay. I guess so. And so she drove out of town, right out of town in, in Juneau. And um, that's about as far as you can get us to the glacier. It's the only uh, state capital in the United States that doesn't have a road going into it. So you have to get there by boat or by plane. But um, and pretty amazing. One of my trips up there, I was playing in Talkeetna at this pub bar, had a, had a um, function room where Cheryl and a bunch of us used to play. And the guy who was opening for me, was a bush pilot. He said, well, if you guys want to go up to Denali tomorrow, I'll, I'll take you up for free. I don't think my mouth closed once during the entire <laughs> flight. <laughs> I mean, he, he, was, he, he perfected the art of landing on glaciers. So he, would, he, he taught the Park Service how to do that. He would fly people in to go, you know, climb the mountain. And um, he, he would fly in between mountains and in between a peak and another peak. And you know, so we flew all around there and then came back down on a, you know, following a glacier all the way back down to town. And I think those two places, the, those two experiences were, were pretty awesome. Wow. Very memorable. I'd try to get back to either one of them as much as possible. Any of the three, I would I would opt to wow. go back to it. Any drop of a hat, basically. Well, I'm definitely, like, making a list from asking this question and that those, I've had to put those three up at the top. Yeah, you do. You have to get up to Alaska. Great. Yeah. That's it. Patty Lurkin, we did it. (laughs) Thank you, Patty. Yeah, thanks. It's been fun. Thanks a lot. I'll tell you what, I produced Basic Folk this week, and didn't I do a fantastic job? I think so. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our business manager is Lindsay Myers. Uh, Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can find all of the episodes anywhere you get podcasts or at my website, cindyhouse.net. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. And if you really like this conversation, please share it with a friend who you think would enjoy it just as much. Um, and you can also subscribe, rate, and review and the like. But just happy to, to have you listen all the way to the end. And we'll talk to you next time. Okay, thanks. Bye. I am what I am. <laughs> Great. Go out on a show tune. All right. Exactly. Go out on a show tune. End with the splits. <laughs>